Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I hope you had a fantastic 4th of July. This episode features Derek Palicki of Gator Capital. Derek is the real deal. He's a financial specialist. I hope you all enjoy the conversation. I hope I asked questions that will enable you all to learn and questions that enabled Derek to show his knowledge. If I did not, please follow up with Derek as this podcast is meant to be an introduction to people, not the entire story. But I will work on getting better as an interviewer and open to all suggestions. Anyway, the episode is sponsored by Delupa. By now, you should know what Delupa is. It is a institutional level data aggregator is the best way that I know how to say it. They may not like that. It may not be specific, but let me tell you how it is to use it. I have been getting emails from Delupa whenever a company that I follow has any update, Delupa sends me an email and it says, this model has been updated. It gives me the line items that have been updated. I can open it in my Excel. I can then see exactly what's changed. I can see every single KPI that's ever been disclosed. The model that they release will be integrated into a model that I build if I want that. It's a fantastic product for getting up to speed on companies, their competitors, industries, I just think it's really great, and I would encourage the institutional listeners to consider it should you need a product like this and be in the market for it. I think it can save a ton of time. I'm happy to have them as a sponsor, and I'm happy to say that I endorse their product. As always, nothing in this show is investment advice. All of this is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions. Do your own due diligence and enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to be joined by Derek Palicki of Gator Capital. If you don't know who he is, you will shortly. And Derek, thank you very much for making the time. Thanks for having me on, Bill. I I think it only took me about three years of reading your letters and then like listening to a podcast where I think I understand the name Gator now. And and correct me if I'm wrong. But it's uh, it symbolizes waiting for an opportunity and then pouncing when you see it. Is that fair? I think so. I, th- I think that that's fair. I think gators are aggressive animals, and you know that that's how I think about my investing style. Is um, you know something that's that's interesting to me as someone who's followed you for a while is you know as a as a financial specialist. It's not, I wouldn't perceive it to be the sexiest choice in the world, but, you know, your, your reputation speaks for itself. And I'm kind of curious if you don't mind giving some background on how you got into it and, and why you yeah. think it's, uh, it's the right sort of place for you to be, I guess, make, would be the way to say yeah. it. So, I mean, I guess I got in, interested in investing, you know, during college, you know, I, I went to Duke, but in the fall of, I, I, in the fall of my freshman year, I, I was waitlisted at Duke and I was granted January admission. So I had that semester off. And so I grew up in Northern Virginia and I took some classes at American university and my classes were kind of spaced out. And so I, you know, during the day, so I just sat in the library and read books and I read investing books that fall. And, um, you know, so I really got interested in all different stock, 
types of investing and it, you know, just started my path to becoming an investor. You know, as I went through my twenties, I, I got a job at Fannie Mae working in their asset liability strategy. And, you know, Fannie Mae used to be one of the most inspired companies in the, in the, in America, but you know, it's a different company nowadays and kind of went through a, a tough time 15 years ago. But you know, when I worked there in the mid nineties, it was, you know, it was a great, an admired company and I worked for some great people and I learned all about the fixed income markets. One thing that we didn't do is stock investing, right? When we just invested in mortgage-backed securities and we funded those with agency debt. And so I did, I continued to do reading at night and just kept reading about stocks and investing and read Lowenstein's Buffett biography, The Making of American Capitalists, not really propelled me to like, I'm, I want to run a portfolio one day. And so just uh, you knew, knew that it was going to take a, be a long path to becoming a hedge fund manager. Uh, and since I had worked at inside Fannie Mae, inside a big financial institution, I, it made it easy to follow financial institutions or banks when I came out of, out of business school. You know, I, that, they said, what sector do you want to cover? And I was like, well, I know financials. So, you know, that's where I've added the most value. And, you know, I, I was a financials analyst the whole time. I worked on the buy side for other people. And so then when I went to go start my own fund, I wanted to stick with what I knew. I didn't think people would pay me to pick healthcare stocks, right? I mean, I had the specialized knowledge that, and, you know, when I started my fund really in, in 2008, kind of like today, financials were a distressed area, right? And so there was a lot of opportunity there, you know, I was surprised that they weren't done to going down yet. Like when I started in July 1st, 2008, and financials still still had a long way to go down from there. It seemed like they were undervalued when I, I launched. But um, you know, there's always just been a lot of opportunity within the sector. I I even think to today, like there's a lot of people who were portfolio managers during the financial crisis that have kind of shunned financial stocks. And so I continue to see ongoing opportunity within the sector, you know, just for specialists to to pull value out of the sector because, you know, there's a lot of companies and a lot of different business models. It takes a lot of specialized knowledge to to follow the sector. So yeah, do you do you want to um, sort of describe what your definition of a financial is so that people kind of understand the things that you're looking at? Yeah, I mean, I, I, classically, it's the the banks and insurance companies, but you know, I also include in that uh, anything in the in the financial index, and including real estate investment trusts, because when I started, REITs were part of the financial sector. So I've I've kept those within the financial sector. From time to time, I'll include companies that have significant financial operations. So like when eBay owned PayPal. 12 years ago, you know, I, I included eBay in my definition of a financial. So GE is a classic example of industrial company, big financial operation, you know, anything that has something like that, but there aren't too many of those these days. Like a lot of, a lot of those companies have separated financial, financial firms out. I mean, I, I guess Harley Davidson's still, still out there. CarMax is still out there, but yeah, something like Caterpillar maybe, but. Yeah, John Deere has yeah. a big financing operation. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, when when I said it wasn't necessarily the sexiest, I you know I I think there's so much attention on tech and 
growth, or, or I think there still is. But I remember once upon a time, I was sitting at a table with Bruce Greenwald, and I told him that my background was in agriculture. And he said, that's a fantastic industry. And I, I, it's taken me a while to understand why he said that. But I think it's similar to financials in that you know, there's cycles that you go through and there's there's uh, opportunities within the sectors. And as I've kind of watched your writing and, and read what you've had to write over the years, it's it's been really interesting to see the opportunities pop up. And I guess, you know, the most prominent and recent example that I can think of, if you don't mind talking about maybe the last five years of evolution, but with Silicon Valley Bank and and kind of what you saw that made you change your mind, if I can say that in the right way, because mm-hmm. I know you admired their their franchise for a while, and then at some point you said this might get a little bit dangerous here. So I'd just love to hear you riff on that and how quickly things might be able to turn in financials. Yeah, so I was long Silicon Valley back 2018, 2019. So I mean, I even owned it back when I worked for GCM back in 2007. So like I've you know, followed the company for a long time. I thought they had a very good franchise. They really had a hammerlock of, I think they banked like 60% of all venture funded companies and and an equivalent market share amongst venture capital firms. And so you just had this great network effect within the Valley of they connected people and got business because of that. And these venture firms left their deposits in, in the bank for very low interest rates because they got other value from the bank. And I just thought it was a great franchise. And, you know, the, they also grew, you know, with, with venture funding and venture funding was booming. So I thought the, I thought in the like, Oh, in the late 18, 19 timeframe, I thought that the stock was undervalued. It was trading for, you know, around 10 times earnings. They, were levered to higher interest rates, and I thought rates would go higher. I th- thought that people overly discounted the Warren income, and so you know I thought it was cheap, and 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 they were growing. Like uh, people were calling for the top of the venture cycle in eighteen, and I didn't have a strong view on that. It just didn't feel like it was the end right then. So hey, you know, I owned the stock, got into COVID, and Fed cut rates, and Silicon Valley went down, and there was a lot to do. And so I kind of, you know, it became a source of capital for me in 2020. And, you know, admittedly, I sold it way too early. I mean, it went on a, a huge run with the venture cycle, right? So I just had, a, there were other things to do. There was a lot of distress in banks and I just didn't think, you know, I thought there was other higher, better uses of the capital. And then, but I continued to follow the company regretted selling it, still followed it, thought I'd get an opportunity one day. And during 2022, you know, the stock was selling off and the bubble was kind of, you know, the SPAC venture bubble was kind of imploding. And in 2022, the stock was off. And so it started taking a more serious look at it, especially with rates going up. And I was surprised by their securities portfolio. Like the, the they had all this excess cash and you could see in their financial statements they had large mark-to-market losses on the on their securities portfolio, and it would quickly did a little bit of digging, and it was clear that they had just bought mortgage-backed securities. And as 
those prepaid, they continue to reinvest in mortgage backed securities. So whereas they might have started out with 4% coupon mortgages, they ended up with 1.5% coupon mortgages. And so as the rates started going up, they had these huge losses. And it was, it was frustrating. You know, I didn't own the stock, but I, it was frustrating because I admired the company and admired the franchise and that they had just dug themselves this huge hole. And so like, I, I guess after the third quarter earnings release last, last year, I looked at it and I was like, oh, they're insolvent. Like they, their securities losses are big enough that they're, they're technically insolvent. Like for regulatory capital purposes, regulators ignore the mark-to-market losses on hold, held in maturity securities. So, you know, they weren't, they didn't show a gap negative value, but, you know, if you did, did the math, with their $14 billion loss on the held maturity securities, they had a negative $4 billion equity account. And, um, and so I actually tweeted that back in November as like, is today today the market realizes Silicon Valley is insolvent and the stock didn't move. Like it didn't, you know, just actually rallied. It rallied in January from 200 to 300. Hmm. I was like, okay, I guess the market's just going <laughs> to ignore this loss. Like, and um, I it was really frustrated with the management team. And then, you know, everything happened in March and it just, you know, finally when they tr- tried to raise capital and the, the depositors got scared and pulled money and of course it imploded. But, um, you know, I admired the franchise. I'm really sad what happened to the bank. Is, is there a logical reason that regulators would not count mark to market? I mean, I understand how silly it sounds in retrospect, but, but maybe other than fighting the last war, what, what might have they been thinking as to why mark to market shouldn't matter for regulatory capital purposes. I think it goes back to the financial crisis when there was, you know, if there's a, a scenario where there's a lack of liquidity in the market, like when the, all the, you know, the subprime mortgages, mortgage backed securities went down in value and people were saying, Hey, these price, the prices of these securities are way below what the ultimate cash flows are going to be. So we should ignore that the market price because the cash flows are going to be higher. I think that's where it came from. A lack of, and that was because of lack of liquidity, right? I mean, just no institutions had enough liquidity to pay fair value for those securities. And that turned out to be the case. Like anybody who bought subprime mortgage securities post, I don't know, October of 08, realized a lot more cash flow than the, they actually paid for price. And so I think what, ignoring mark to market does it's for it allows banks to take more risks than they really should so like silicon valley had a deposit base where it was all on-demand checking accounts and so people could pull their money out as we saw 40 billion the first day and 100 billion was lined up for the second day of withdrawals they shouldn't have been in 30-year mortgage-backed securities they should have been in short-term treasuries you know maybe they should have gone out one or two years on interested securities because the market for the treasuries short-term treasuries doesn't really move, move that much. So, but it, I think that it goes back to the financial crisis of why people were saying we need to ignore mark to market because of the way the market price subprime securities back in 08. Yeah. Something that I, I, I've sort of realized through the, through watching this is there's an assumption on the duration of your deposits, right? So yeah. it seems to me that some management teams will potentially try to barbell uh, the approach. And that's that's nice on a computer model until the depositors start to flee 
and then it becomes a real problem if they do. And, 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 you know, I mean, it's, you, you've written about, and I think anybody that's looked at it, Bank of America, Schwab, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see some of these portfolios, but it appears as though maybe the deposit assumption is a little more sound. Yeah, I think the, um, I think there's been a real change in what the duration of deposits is. You know, we, during 08, when WAMU had its initial stages of its run before it was sold to, to Chase, I think over like a 10-day period, $17 billion came out of the bank versus Silicon Valley, $40 billion came out in one day. So I think, you know, with technology and everybody having smartphones and apps, it's really easy to move money nowadays. And I think we those assumptions about how, what the duration of checking accounts is, is has to change. I mean, it has to be massively shorter. And I would, I would extend this to say that, you know, I'm an advocate for increasing deposit insurance. You know, I think... Clearly, 250000 is way too low. It hasn't been adjusted for 15 years, hasn't been adjusted for inflation. You know, we have these reciprocal deposits like Intrafi or Cedars, where you can get FDIC insurance through your original bank by, because they put the, put the deposits out to other banks. I think that's just getting around the rules. We should just increase the deposit insurance amount for companies and individuals that should go to a million or $2 million. And for operating accounts for corporations, you can make it unlimited. And so that way, you know, we really would eliminate bank runs. You know, if you think about you know, who benefits from a bank run, nobody does. It's a, it's a, just a, a negative thing for society. Like, why, why should we have bank runs? Like, uh, and I don't think you can expect depositors to evaluate the risk management practices of a bank. So, like, look at Silicon Valley at a two hundred and sixty dollar stock price, $20 billion market cap two days before it failed. What depositor is going to look at that market cap and say, oh, my deposit's at risk or, uh, you know, I don't like their bond portfolio. I mean, that's just not a good use of society's resources to have depositors worry about that. That's why we have regulators. The regulators should be in there saying the bank has too much risk. You should reduce risk. It shouldn't be up to depositors. So I, I mean, I think we should have more deposit insurance to eliminate bank runs. I, I, going back to your question about duration of checking account deposits, it has to be, banks just have to assume it's shorter with rates going up so much, everybody's repricing, are you moving excess cash to higher yielding accounts? I think I totally agree with your promise. Do you, um, the, the one argument that I've heard against moving deposit insurance to something unlimited is like, does that take away from some of the smaller banks? Uh, said differently, do some of the smaller banks benefit from the incentive to spread deposits out to different banks? And and is that a good or a bad thing? Or sort of, how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, I actually think deposit insurance would benefit small banks because then you can leave your money, like bigger depositors could wouldn't be worried about a small bank. They'd say, okay, the FDIC and the regulators are looking at the small bank. I've, I'm totally protected. If I leave $2 million here, I don't need to have an account at a big bank. So I think actually think it would help small banks to have unlimited deposit insurance or higher, much higher limits. Yeah, I think the, the flight to the large banks would probably support your hypothesis, right? Because it seems right. as though that deposits just went to the SIFIs. Once, once the run happened, it seemed like everybody was looking for the big banks to put their uh, their money in. 
Right. I think the argument against higher deposit insurance is banks might risk-loving banks or risk-loving management teams would take raise deposits and invest in very risky projects. So like during oh during the financial crisis, there was a bank in Chicago called Chorus that was the number one funder of condo developments. And they had a huge portfolio of condo developments, both in Chicago and Miami. And so if they had unlimited deposit insurance, would they be able to fund just more and more condo developments? And I, my argument there is, well, it's up to the regulators to limit the amount of money they have in any one asset class or to evaluate the risk management practices. So like deposit insurance, unlimited deposit charts could make a bank, allow a bank to grow too fast. But I would say the regulators should be there to, to stop that. So speaking about the, the uh, regional bank or commercial real estate and condos generally, I can't help but have a, a conversation about banks and financials without asking you about what's going on with specifically office, but how big of a deal do you think this upcoming refi wave is going to be? And and how are you taking a step back and thinking about things uh, from sort of first principles? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, I think it's a big issue. I mean, uh, rates have moved a long way. So I think there's a lot. Of, and we also have the banks less, less, willing to refi people out of other people's loans, right? I mean, they'll extend existing loans in their own portfolio, but they're not going to take other people's loans off their books. So um, I think it's going to be a difficult, difficult wave we're going to go through here, especially with, um, you know, leases burning off and, and occupancy going down, vacancy going up. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be very tough. I think it's, it totally depends on who holds the the note, right? I mean, if a bank holds the note, they can work with the borrower, they can be flexible, they can extend the note. If it's if the note's sitting in a commercial mortgage-backed security, there's not that much flexibility. There's, you know, the special servicer has to try to get maximized proceeds for the for the note hold the the underlying bondholders. I think they are just handcuffed of how much they can do to to extend the note and to work with the borrower. And so a lot of times they'll just take it to auction. You know, they'll just foreclose and an auction off the property. And so I think that's going to be tough. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of big, and you you think about the central business districts, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, those big towers in those central business districts, they tend, those notes tend to be in commercial mortgage backed securities. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know, there's not a lot of banks who can make loans that that size. Yeah, your hold size and, would be huge, right? You know, they're just huge, huge loans, right? And so, and and the big banks are are pretty pretty low risk takers as far as you know. I don't see J.P. Morgan or Bank of America holding office tower notes in their portfolios. I think that they just let those go into to commercial mortgage backed securities. So I think it'll be a, a big issue for the commercial mortgage backed security market. And I think there'll be a lot of you know, a lot of foreclosures and a lot of auctions. I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be tough. You know, just in the, the news the last three weeks in San Francisco, Park Hotels turned back the keys of two big hotels in San Francisco. There's a mall that just got turned back. You know, I, I think we're going to see, continue to see more of that. And what, I mean, what does that look like, practically speaking? And do you, then a new, the, the person that wins the auction comes in and they are likely financed by bank debt? 
or is it like private credit? Who steps into some of these transactions, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it'll be a lot of private credit. It'll be a lot of, you know, it, it could be, they could have some bank debt, but, you know, I think it'll be a lot of, you know, vulture funds that'll come in and buy, buy those properties. And, you know, they'll, they'll generally use private credit. They might use a little bit of bank debt, but, you know, the, the LTVs on, on, on bank debt are so low that it's probably not the, most attractive financing for those vulture funds. Yeah. Well, that's that's sort of one of the things when I've been looking at, like I, I like to look at m and I don't, I mean, I don't own it. I don't know anything about financials for real, but, you know, I, I, I know that they have a very positive reputation and, and the LTVs appear, you know, they're only as good as the assumption of the value, right? But it seems as though there's there's some equity cushion even in some of some of uh, the regional banks' portfolios that I think that I think people are maybe a little bit le- like overly scared. I- I'm not I'm not sure whether or not that's true, but I know that you've identified some opportunity in regionals. And yeah, I, I mean, I, so I think the banks, the regional banks, have done a good job with disclosure around CRE, like the. The amount of disclosure in Q1 earnings versus Q4 earnings just multiplied. Like so, like almost every bank put out a slide of, here's our CRE exposure, here's our office exposure, here's our central business district exposure, and so like you can really compare and contrast diff- different banks. It seems like office exposure tends to be you know three to five percent of the portfolios. You know you have to subtract out owner occupied office from investor owned office. You have to subtract out medical office, which, you know, the vacancy on medical office properties is a lot lower than typical office properties. So there's a lot of mitigating factors. And I think the banks have improved their disclosure around that subject. And so I think that, I mean, that's one of the things I like about banks. So like, I don't feel like, I don't feel like there's a lot of scams being run by regional bankers. So I mean, they, they, they tend to be in their jobs for a long time. They're regulated entities. They're not you know, they, they pretty, uh, they all expense stock options, right? I mean, they're, they're all, I feel like the disclosure is pretty good within the sector. You know, they're all regulated entities. They all have published call reports that has more, even more information than what's in their SEC filings. So I think, you know, to the extent that there's other distress in the, in the real estate sector, I, I expect the banks to, to disclose that. If somebody was was interested, uh, where where do you find stuff like the published call reports and like some of the public filings that are not like the 10K or whatever? Like if, yeah, I'm, if so I was I mean, an I, enterprising I use, young man, I, I use Cap IQ. Like yeah. right, I mean it's yeah. They I don't know if their their bank regulatory modules enabled for everybody else, but like you know it, it's enabled in my subscription and that's what I use. Um, but you know the FDIC call. You know, FDIC.gov is where all the call reports are available. You can you can do searches and find them. I, I think um, I, I, a write up that you put out a while ago that I that I liked because it shows how many assumptions there are in any given number in financials. And I think about you know what you're saying right now, but I, I believe it was uh, the AMBAC liquidation. Yeah, uh, I, I mean. Just to watch your adjustments through that, it was really interesting. And I don't know how that turned out for you, but your your perception of the market value of the stock versus where it was trading and the amount of assumptions. It's a financials is fascinating, right? Because it's all 
it's kind of a black box in a way, but I see you cut through a lot of the, the darkness. Yeah, I, unfortunately, impact didn't work out as as well. And I don't think it was because of those adjustments or the sum of the parts didn't work. There was a legal case that, and a, a related legal case that had an opinion that AMBAC, you know, Bank of America was able to use against AMBAC to, to keep the, the settlement to a lower number than I, I had hoped for. But, you know, I think that's one of the things I love about financials. Like, uh, you can kind of go through the numbers and sometimes there's, you know, there's value just sitting there. I, one of my early hits when I first started the fund back in 2010 was um, commercial mortgage REITs were had issued a bunch of, um, you know, CLOs or CDOs, and you could go through and, you know, that some of the debt, all the senior debt was non-recourse to the equity. So like, I remember this one had 10 securitizations outstanding. You go through each one and say, okay, for these six, you know, the equity is worthless, but on these last four, I think they're going to recover the, some value for the equity. And it had to report a negative book value because of the, the marks on the, on the senior debt of the, the first six securitizations. But since they were non-recourse, you could eliminate that and you could get, you know, the stock was trading for like 80 cents. You could get six bucks on the book value if you would limit, but the, the, the reported book value was like negative 15. So like you could do the math and say, Hey, as soon as everybody realizes this is non-recourse debt, the, the stock should be much higher. And so occasionally you get those those types of opportunities within financials. Yeah. I I have seen you write or talk about, uh, and I've talked to my friends about some of the um, mortgage rate preferreds right now, which is right. is kind of interesting in a, in a similar way. Uh, you want to talk about those at all? Yeah. So mortgage rate preferreds, you know, they, they issue these fixed to floating rate preferreds and you know, mortgage REITs had a really tough 2022, like with mortgage spreads widening, you know, the book values declined. And then, you know, there was a little hiccup in August and September last year where spreads just blew out. And when spreads blow out, the preferreds always trade down like they're distressed because, you know, if the equity goes to zero, then the preferreds get the next hit. And so when the, you know, realize the, the equity all took like 15 to 20% hits the book value during Q3 last year, the preferreds never took any losses, right? So they traded down and then they traded down again in December on tax loss selling, and then they traded it down on Silicon Valley again. So like, this is like a third bite of the apple on yeah. these mortgage rate preferreds. They're on fixed to floating rate periods and the fixed rate periods coming to an end and they're gonna reset to three month LIBOR so free plus a spread. And a lot of the spreads are five or 6%. So like with the, the preferreds trading at, you know, 75 cents on the dollar, they're going to reset to like 10% yields. And it, you know, that works out to a current yield of like 14 or 15%. And so I think as they reset to the floating rate periods in a year or two years from now, they'll trade closer to par. And so like you can get there's a couple that you could get 75% return or 45% returns over the next year as they trade closer to par during the reset period. So why would they not trade at par? I think it's just a small market. They're small issues. I think, uh, you know, mortgage rate prefer mortgage REITs are kind of, you know, they're not squirrely companies, but they're not operating companies. It's just a, a few guys on a Bloomberg, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of like, it's just like an investment fund. It's not like a bank. 
you know, they trade well outside where bank preferreds trade, even with the distress in banks. Hmm. And so I think that's that's pretty interesting because mortgage rates aren't really distressed right now. There's, you know, they're earning money. Yes, spreads are wide, but it's not like people are worried about liquidity in the repo market right now. So I think it's a it's an interesting opportunity. Yeah, it seems to me like the consumer is in good shape. The duration is extended, right? Because rates have already gone up. So, mm-hmm. yep. I I don't know a lot of the, a lot of the risk that you that you take when rates are lower. I think is sort of de risk. Now, of course, it can always go higher, but it's, it's kind of it's an interesting concept, especially when it's trading at a discount to where it should go when it's when the when the security starts to flip to a floating rate. Right. I would even say that with mortgage to debt spreads this wide there's only really one way that you go is tighter. And so that that would be good for the equity. So like, I don't think the the next news on mortgage rates is gonna be necessarily negative. I think it could be positive with tighter spreads as we you know get into a better liquidity environment. How, um, how, how much of your job is focusing on stuff like uh, consumer, the strength of the consumer and sort of macro forces versus it just, I guess what I'm saying is the bottom up and the macro seem to be kind of connected when you're talking about financials. Is that uh, fair? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the macro doesn't change for me often, right? I mean, so like consumer credit goes on long trends where it's not like it's going to turn on a dime of like if the Fed raises 25 bips, my view of the consumer has changed, right? My, my view of the consumer has been pretty steady for the past 10 years, right? I mean, you know, I, I've long thought that we we're going to have a long, long economic expansion. We've had a couple of hiccups, right? I mean, we had the hiccup around COVID, which was unexpected. But, you know, absent that, since the financial crisis, we really haven't had a recession, right? So I think, yeah, and I think it's going to be a while before we have a recession. I think credit quality is pretty good. Um, I'm, I've been worried about a recession more in the last three months than I have in the last 15 years because. You know, I worry that bank lending getting shut off could cause a recession. You know, when you think about recessions, you know, 1991 and 08, 09 were pretty deep recessions. And both the, both t- those times, banks cut off lending. In 01, 02, it was a pretty mild recession. You know, it was more a capital markets, you know, CLEC debt, telecom debt implosion that caused the recession, not so much bank lending stopping. So to the extent that banks stop lending because of liquidity right now, I'm more worried about a recession now than I have been. It doesn't seem like the, you know, the stock market's gone straight up, right? And so like the market's not worried about a recession, you know, and it seems like there's enough banks still lending that, you know, the big banks can still lend that it doesn't seem like we're having a credit crunch right now. Although I'm, I'm wary about that because I hear a lot of banks slowing down their lending and they need to raise capital or not, or just allow their capital ratios grow. So they're just going to stop lending. So, but I agree with you that macro and bottom, bottom up financials analysis is, is very similar in my sector. And when you talk about uh, the, the liquidity, your concern about lending due to liquidity, is that because of these uh, held to maturity or the mark to market losses creating a scenario where they need to build capital buffers for the short term in case there's another run on deposits or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think 
bank runs scare bankers, right? Yeah. And so there's not, you know, that's death for a banker. And, uh, and so I think the banking industry, everybody's like, I need more liquidity. I need to retain capital. So I think there a lot of banks have slowed down lending. Like they're not doing anything on the edges everything. They're like, I'll take care of my core customer, but that's about it. Like, I'm not going to do anything to try to really grow aggressively here. Yeah. So I think that's the slowdown that there is self-preservation of monks, monks bankers. One of the things that, that I was shocked by, and perhaps I shouldn't have been, but I, I was because I've had people on this podcast that I've talked about how good First Republic's franchise was. And, you know, qualitatively, I talked to customers and they'd say how much they love them. But that that first weekend, I was uh, I was eating lunch at my grandma's community and there were two gentlemen next to me and they were looking at their accounts and they said, why do we have this many deposits sitting there earning nothing and, and incurring risk when we could be moving it to risk-free treasuries, earning a lot more? And I... I think my one of the things that I learned was whether I guess deposit diversity is so much more important than maybe I I mean maybe this is banking 101 but I just didn't like realize that having a customer base of really wealthy people could actually become an Achilles heel if they are technologically savvy and all reading the same paper right like what I yeah. thought was actually its greatest asset I think maybe in a way became what brought it down. And that was, that was an interesting learning. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's also the overlap of customer bases between Silicon Valley and first Republic. I mean, they're both head, both were headquartered in the Bay area. I think they banked the same people to the extent that people got scared because of Silicon Valley. And they also had big accounts at first Republic, you know, it's the same people. Right. Um, and so I, I think that, I think the, you bring up an important point about diversity of customer bases. Cause like what I went, met with a few banks in May and you, know, these were banks in the middle of the country, right? I mean, they're Illinois, Louisiana, Tennessee. And, um, you know, they were talking about talking to their customers after Silicon Valley and their customers were kind of like, why are you calling me? Like, <laughs> and you know, after the, as the news came yeah, out there, the yeah. customers eventually were like, Oh, I'm glad you did call me because I, you know, since I got scared, but you had already called me and I felt better, but like that there's a lot of, you know, middle America, this was not a middle America event, right? I mean, this was a Bay area venture community event. This is not, but you know, certainly there's large depositors in every community that got scared about their bank for a minute and, and they don't seem to have left their bank. They, they seem to have asked their bank for higher rates or asked it, can we do something to increase my deposit insurance and but they for the most part depositors have not left their banks yeah well it turns out middle america is not sitting on twitter getting uh you know people scaring them which is something that i took issue with while it was going on but that's neither here nor there you know to what extent does the do you think of the increase because you mentioned you know the banks may have to pay depositors more now how much do you think of that as credit tightening because I would think that if they're going to pay depositors more, they're going to have to ask for a higher rate on their loan, right? Otherwise, their NIM yeah. goes away. So right. that almost by definition decreases the amount of credit that they can extend, I would think. I mean, it's also going to be limit the amount of demand that the 
the borrowers have for, you know, if they have to, instead of paying six and a half percent, they have to pay eight and a half. They're not going to, there's a lot of projects that don't pencil at eight and a half. So I think that the law, there's also, and you know, it's both sides. It's the bankers don't want to lend and the, the borrowers don't want to borrow at the higher rates. And so, I mean, I think, I think the banks are going to have a tough quarter this quarter on deposit costs. I think we saw some of it in Q1, but it was really just a one month effect of Silicon Valley it happened in March. You get three months in this quarter of deposit pressures. I think it's going to be it's going to be a tough quarter for profitability for the banks. You know, just deposit costs are higher. I think the whole having the media say bank crisis, bank crisis, bank crisis, and talk about rates. I mean, rates have moved a ton, right? And five percent on T bills, people are asking for higher rates, and so I think that it's going to be a tough quarter. I think. You know, we're going to get to either Q2 or Q3 is going to be the bottom. You know, it's going to get better from there, but it's, you know, this quarter is going to be ugly. I guess the the one thing that were was interesting, I guess Morgan Stanley had a conference a couple of weeks ago, and a lot of banks gave negative outlooks for NIM and Q2, and not all the stocks went down. So, like, when stocks stopped going down on bad news, is that a bottom? Yeah. You know, banks have had a nice little rally since mid-May. You know, are they a little ahead of themselves, or is... Did they? Is that just correcting overshooting? It's not really clear to me yet. But um, you know, it, it, I think it's interesting on some of those negative mid-quarter updates. The the stocks didn't necessarily go down. Yeah, that is interesting. When when you're building a long short portfolio, and and you have a bank, at, and it may not be as black and white as the question that I asked. So I apologize if there's not mm-hmm. enough nuance, but. Say you like one bank, do you try to pick a bank to short against it? Or will you say banks generally are relatively undervalued relative to asset managers or something like that? Like, how do you think about constructing a long short portfolio when you're constrained to a sector? Yeah, I I don't pair off subsectors within within the the portfolio. I'm short plenty of banks. I think this opportunity right now is is interesting because there's Great banks that have gone down, like banks are down 30% year to date, right? So there's great banks that have gone down. They don't have interest rate problems. They might have some pressure on the deposit side, but it's not life altering. And so I think that's the opportunity alongside these high quality banks. But on the short side, there's a lot of banks that are still shorts. There's still a lot of banks that have fixed rate loans, that have big securities portfolios that are undercapitalized. And so like I have, I'm not sitting here thinking, Banks or regional banks are the opportunity. I'm not going to short any regional banks. I'm I'm still shorting plenty of regional banks that have mismanaged interest rate risk and the stock should be lower. And so that's what's so unique about this opportunity is there's there's opportunities on both sides, long and short. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I think it's interesting. And it's interesting to think about. I've I've talked to somebody who said, um, when he, he was actually a financial specialist and he said, you know, a, a couple PMs wanted to like go short NASDAQ because they kind of wanted to do like a value play. And he's like, I don't want to do inter sector shorts and longs. Like I, if I'm a financials mm-hmm. guy, I want to be. So I was curious how you think about like pairing yeah. up your longs and your shorts. I try, you know, I guess one thing that you can get, I get caught in from time to time is like I, I short a lot of companies that are high that trade at high multiples that I think that are just average businesses or that are okay businesses. And so you can get caught up into high quality, you know, risk factor. If you think about a risk factors, quality is a, is a 
a factor and values a factor. And sometimes you can get caught up of you have too much of one factor versus another, and you might have the same trade on implicitly on both sides of the book. So like, I don't want to be long all value and short all quality. I want to make sure that, you know, I'm a match better than that. Yeah, because being long, mostly value would imply that the value quality gap is too wide, right? So then if you were right. short in quality, you would be doubling down on sort of the same bet, right? Correct. Yeah. And sometimes that works, like from mid-May to mid-June, long value, short quality worked within financials. Like if you look at the insurance brokers or you know, Visa MasterCard or S&P and Moody's, they all lag the regional banks for four weeks. Now, does that continue? Probably not. You know, those are great companies, right? Yeah. But yeah, there can be episodes where it happens. Yeah. Um, do you mind talking about Genworth? Because I think it is a really great example of how long it's it actually Genworth is why I thought of you as as the gator that waits. So I'd be curious if you talk a little bit yeah. about how long you followed it before you saw the opportunity. Yeah. So I mean I own Genworth from 2012 to you know, 2014, and then it it kind of went off into the wilderness and was trying to get acquired by a Chinese insurance company. And I just kind of followed the company. It bounced between three and four bucks for, you know, from 14 to 2020. And then I, you know, I was listening to our earnings call and they were talking about buying back stock. The, the deal had fallen through finally, and they had IPO'd Inact, their mortgage insurance subsidiary. So I started listening to the calls more, more closely. And just doing the sum of the parts, I mean, Genworth, the holding company, was trading at a discount to its publicly traded subsidiary Inact. And so I, you know, waited eight years to buy the stock back. The, you know, Genworth talked about in, I think it was January 2020, they they said, or maybe it was March 2020, they said they were going to, 2022, they, they said they're going to buy back stock later that year. And, you know, that was the catalyst for closing the discount to the, the sum of the parts. You know, Genworth, Genworth has two businesses, mortgage insurance and then life insurance. And life insurance is dominated by their long-term care insurance business, which is terrible, a terrible business, right? I mean, it's selling insurance policies to 60-year-olds when they might go into a nursing home at 85. So it's like a 25-plus year insurance policy. And everybody underestimated the cost. The percentage of people who would go into nursing homes and what the cost would be and so they just lost oodles and oodles of money on on those policies they've they've stopped selling them but and they've raised rates they've been able to reprice a lot of those policies and i think the the cumulative amount of their repricing is like 23 billion dollars and there's still a question of whether that life insurance subsidiary is solvent hmm. even though they've raised prices 23 billion dollars so um there's like $6 billion of equity capital in the life insurance subsidiary. So in my sum of the parts, I value that at zero. I don't know that it's zero. Like, I think that's the upside on Genworth is, are they, have they salvaged some value out of that life insurance subsidiary? So they'll continue to raise prices on that book of business. Those people, some of the older policies, people are finally dying and the policies are going away. Some of their biggest cohorts of policies, people are just approaching the years where they're going to make claims. So like, the next couple of years are um, are kind of will have a better view of like what the the policy costs are on their bigger cohorts. You know, if they can salvage some value out of that life insurance subsidiary, there's some there's some real value there of um, 
of of the life insurance. So to give you an idea, like they have about a half half billion dollar half billion shares outstanding, and so you know the the book value of the the life insurance subsidiary is about ten or twelve dollars a share. The stock trades for five dollars a share. So you know at five dollars, it's just what the value of the mortgage insurance subsidiary is. So there's some some real upside, but it's going to take take a long time to before we get any cash flow out of the life insurance subsidiary, if we get any at all. Is is life insurance generally, I mean, I know that I got sold term, uh, I was pitched on whole or whatever, but is it possible that that life insurance has repriced enough or that the market will reprice enough? Uh, I mean, first of all, is it still marketed? And second of all, my question is, is it possible that it's like actually going to be a good business at some point, but it's been so bad for so long that like yeah. no one wants to touch it? You know, they're trying to make it an asset light business. So like it's it's different from just life insurance is long term care insurance. Yeah, business. it's it's, uh, you know, I don't think the way they used to write the policies is a good business at all. It's a terrible business. So the. Um, they're trying to reuse their they have a claims infrastructure that could potentially be valuable. So if they can make long term care insurance business priced like we health insurance and where it gets repriced every year. It could potentially be a decent business. Like United Healthcare has been one of the best stocks in, in our lifetimes, right? I mean, so if they can get that same model, it could be pretty interesting. But I don't, I don't know. We'll, we'll see if the regulators will go for that. There, it's going to take multiple years before they try to to implement that on a wide scale. Yeah, that's a, it's tough, man. I I um I watched my grandma go through it. I've I've you know. It, getting old is not cheap and it doesn't appear to be getting any cheaper and the labor is very, very difficult to find. So, you know, and, competent yeah. people, you've got to pay them. And it's, it's like a real kink in the system. So I don't know, we're going to have more and more people that need facilities like that. And it seems like we just don't have a sufficient amount of nurses around. So it's going to be interesting to watch. I'm sure capitalism will solve it, right? Prices will go up, but it's, uh, it's interesting. It's tough. I mean, I think immigration is a real issue in the country. Number of new residents coming to the country that wouldn't normally help out in, in industries like that is is making it harder. Yeah, it's not a particular uh, particularly glamorous job, right? To, no, to help people no, it, die. It's a hard. So. It's a hard job. Yeah, and emotionally taxing too. There's a lot of getting connecting to, connected to people to then just like watch them leave. So. I don't know. It's it's interesting. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Hard business. Huh. Uh, one one idea that that I heard you talk about that really I I uh it really like reframed the way that I think when I heard you talk about it was the Puerto Rican banks and when you when you talked about them versus like Hawaii and the regional sort of oligopolies. And it and I thought it was it was so interesting because so much of what I read about Puerto Rico is not positive. Uh, that I'm I'm curious how you've seen opportunity and what what seems to be a lot of like negative headlines, for lack of a better. Yeah, so I mean, Puerto Rico is an interesting place. I mean, it's a it's a U.S. territory. It's not a state, but the banks there are regulated by the FDIC, so they're effectively U.S. banks, right? And they're all of them have operations in the mainland. And it's been, you know, the island's 
just been in this 15-year recession, right? And since the tax laws changed where the pharmaceutical companies didn't get tax breaks for manufacturing the island, the island's just been in recession. And so, you know, populations left, they've gone to Florida and New York. And I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans who live on the mainland who would love to go back home if they could work, right? They're here because they need jobs. And um, they, but they prefer to be on the island. And so I think there's this opportunity for Puerto Rico to really turn around if jobs went back to the island. And so like we've gotten a little bit of a start on that, like the the reconstruction from the hurricanes is is lit a little spark in the the construction industry there. There is potential for reshoring healthcare facilities. So, so there's like 25 manufacturing facilities on the island to the extent that we reshore pharmaceutical and medical devices from China back back to the US kind of like Puerto Rico and Indiana are the two big territories or states that will benefit from that so um you know so that's another potential spark to, to Puerto Rico and then you know the, the, there's a lot of you know the the government being too indebted and going through this bankruptcy is limited growth and to the extent that they're coming out of that and improving their infrastructure, that's another avenue for growth. So I think that's, you know, those are all positive things. And in the meantime, you've had this consolidation of the banking sector. They've gone from 11 or 12 banks down to three on the island. And just that, you know, like you mentioned, the oligopoly is just creating this pricing umbrella that makes banking much more profitable. You know, banking was unprofitable or marginally profitable for for a long time in Puerto Rico. There's just too much competition. And now there's there's a you know a lack of competition or just you know the banks just aren't don't need to fight with each other to the extent that there's only three of them yeah it reminds me a little bit of uh of buffett's airline bet in a different way which you know it maybe maybe arguably didn't work but i think it's a little too early to see whether or not his bet worked but like that consolidation to an oligopoly structure in a local uh market I thought it was uh, was very insightful. So thank you for yeah, sharing thank that. Thank you. So I mean, hopefully it works out like Buffett's uh, railroad bet. That's right. Of his airline bet, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, indeed. I, you know, one time, and you know, we don't have to talk about it. But when we were talking, you you had mentioned that your firm you went through a period where managing the portfolio, managing the business created sort of an interesting tension in your life. And I wanted to talk to you about that because I think that there's a lot of, you know, listeners that are that are trying to manage that. And, you know, if you don't mind sharing some of your learnings uh, and what you went yeah. through, uh, that'd be great. Yeah. So when I started Gator, I had this vision of I'm going to start this portfolio and I'm going to start raising money and then I'm going to use the I'm going to reinvest the cash flow to grow the business and you know i you know you know that was my vision of like i want to grow a business i don't want to milk it i want to reinvest and just grow it and so the, the, i thought that we could have four or five pms and we'd all be managing a couple billion dollars and it'd be a great business to to have and and so we started going down that path i started growing and hired a a former colleague from gsam to start a fund for him and and there was a couple things going on. Like I had had very good performance the first five years of the fund, and then I started growing. And so 
just growing my own product took demands of my time of new investors. People wanted to talk to me with the performance. And then at the same time, I was trying, I hired this other person who was trying to grow the firm. We hired a few additional employees. And then you have to keep raising money to, to make pay off those investments. And so at the time I would have said, I can handle it all. Like I can, I'm got the investing down. I I'm expanding the firm. These other investments don't take a lot of my time. At the time, my right about that time, my performance, my fund turned down for there was like 18 months where I underperformed the the sector and the market. And in hindsight, I think those stresses of raising money for my own product and then also trying to expand the firm and managing this other PM created a lot of stress that affected my performance. Like I can't look at anything specifically and said, oh, I made that mistake. But there was just a series of investment decisions that didn't work in a row. And I have to think that I was, that pressure affected my investment performance. And so, you know, I, I got to, after about a year and a half, I realized I wasn't going to be able to raise money for this second PM. And, uh, and so I closed his fund down, had to let him go, which was stressful as a friend. And, and yeah, I tough. spent a lot of money trying to do it, trying to, to hire him and, and raise money for him. And then, you know, and closing, closing his fund was kind of like, it's kind of like the stunt cost, right? All that money's out the door. I'm never going to recover it. You know, I think, I think I spent about $800,000. And so I look back at it and like, I, I live in Tampa and the beach is about 45 minutes away. And I don't own a beach condo because I tried to own, start this other fund. And so I think about it in those terms of like, oh, I tried to open this fund for my buddy instead of buying a beach condo. And, you know, buying the beach condo wouldn't have aligned with my values at the time. Like I was very much of, I want to reinvest the cash flow into the firm. And so that's what I wanted to do. And it didn't work. And so since then, I've narrowed the scope, my vision of Gator. It's it's just my fund. It's financials only. We're not going to be anything else. We're not gonna we're not gonna have other products. I'm just gonna be focused on putting up the best numbers I can for my fund. And so you know, it was a humbling experience. It was you know, lost of money. Didn't do give my investors good performance during those 18 months. So like all that is just a learning experience that has kept me focused in the years since. Well, I appreciate how honest you were. I went back and looked and I would argue that your investors are still probably okay. But, uh, I, you know, I do, I, I, it's tough, right? There's, uh, there's demands. I I've noticed it with some of my friends that are out raising and, uh, I've got one friend that might be close to closing his fund and and I, I'm hopeful for him because I think it allows you to get back to back to the to the drawing board of like what is just the investing side of it, right? Rather than the business side, which can be taxing. Right. right. I mean the investing side's what we all love and that's what produces the value. So you need to you need to stay focused on that because the whole thing unwinds if the investment side doesn't work. Yeah. So I, I do have to ask, what is going on with the mutual fund that you run? Like, what was the purpose of taking yeah. that over? Yeah, so, you know, I had started a mutual fund in 2013 as part of the business expansion. And so when we got to 2017, I got this opportunity to take over this other mutual fund. 
And, you know, so it's the Caldwell and Orkin Fund. It's the oldest long short mutual fund. So it was started in 1992 and Michael Orkin ran it and Michael was going to retire. And so I won the bake off to the board just selected me to take over the fund. And, you know, kind of the idea was I already had a mutual fund. I have a, the hedge fund long short investing. I was the best position to, to run a long short mutual fund. And I thought it could add to, add to my firm because I talk to advisors who want to put their clients into the hedge fund, but then, you know, they'll have some clients that don't qualify for the hedge fund, right? I mean, not everybody has 2 million liquid to, to go in the hedge fund. So, um, you know, or kids accounts or whatever. So the mutual fund serves a, a purpose of uh, an advisor can keep their clients in the same in type of investment, like that the qualified investors can go into the hedge fund and then the smaller clients can go in the mutual fund. And so that's, that's the idea behind the, the mutual fund. It, the overlap between the portfolios is significant. It's not exactly identical that the hedge fund uses a little bit of leverage and the hedge fund uh, invests because the hedge fund only has monthly liquidity. It can invest in some smaller cap companies. So those are the two big differences between the, the two products. But you know, the, the mutual funds out there and um, trying to build the performance and, and, uh, and grow that fund. But it, you know, I, think, I think of it as it's not distracting from managing money. It's just two, two vehicles. We also manage some separate accounts for some clients. So you know, it's just, it's all investing. Yeah, it's symbiotic, right? It had to be rewarding to win the Bake Off. That's like that's a cool fun to take over, and uh, yeah. you know, like that's that's neat. I, I would think that it would be, um, I don't know, that that would be somewhat validating. I don't know if you need it. I I need validation in my life. I like to win, and uh, sometimes hear nice things about myself. So, you know, it's interesting. I think the mutual fund business is dying, right? You yeah, know, I've been involved in in it for about ten years now. I mean, running my own mutual fund for ten years, and um, the ETF structure is such a better tax structure that I don't know, you know, mutual funds won't die because people have unrealized gains and they won't liquidate, right? I mean, they'll just leave them out there. But I don't think it makes sense to start new mutual funds from here. Like, I would not advise anybody to open a mutual fund. It's just they're trying to raise money and the, the way that platforms make it hard to get on the mutual, get on their platform, the, the cost or the you know, having to have advisors sponsor you to get on the platforms and then have to pay the platforms money makes it very difficult. I think yeah, that... distribution is a hard part of this business. Like I would I would think that you would have plenty of distribution, but I don't think that's reality, right? It's not as easy as my returns are are X put me on your your platform, right? It's like a lot a lot harder than that. Right. I mean, I think the mutual fund is like five stars and nobody's calling up and saying, Hey, we need your five star fund on our platform. Like, yeah. They're they're like, pay me twenty five thousand dollars and we'll think about putting you on our platform. Yeah, that's wild. I was going through I've I've uh, I've gotten an annuity, uh, which is the bane of my existence, but you know, it's a nice thing to it's you know, you inherit something, it's not the end of the world. But I was looking through and it's like the same managers are all of the options. And I just got to thinking to myself, I wonder what these guys are all paying to be the choice. Like, well, you know, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of digging to see the, the back, you know, the backroom dealing or whatever that goes on yes. with like being carried. It's crazy. It is crazy. But 
The nice thing is, I think with platforms like this or, you know, podcasts or education is widespread. I think people are starting to wake up to some of it, right? It'll never go away and you've got to have business to business uh, relationships. But I don't know, some of the, some of the paying for placement is, rubs me the wrong way in the financial industry, right? It should be more pure than that. Right. Yeah. Like it's not the, uh, you know, these, some, I guess the brokers get away because they're not technically fiduciaries, but, uh, um, you know, it's not, it's serving their own interests rather than their clients' interests. Yeah. And it's upsetting because, you know, I, I mean, I, I talk about her sometimes I'm not trying to throw her under the bus, but like my mom, right. She's like, oh, well, this is carried by this person. They must be, they must be good. And, and it's like, no, that's not at all what's going on. And also look at the fees that they're charging and these, you know, it's like, but there's a, um, what is it? It's almost like an authority bias when somebody recommends somebody else. It's like, well, they came vetted through this person, so they must yeah. know what they're talking about. It's like, right. no, it's just a lot of it's a grift, Ma. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so, but you know, I think um, you, know, you use your mom as an example. I think I'm hopeful that the younger generation sees through that more. Like, I think, I think there's a little more cynicism or more like, tell me, tell me for real why this is ha- happening. Like, so I'm hopeful that younger, younger generations just kind of see through that. Yeah, I, I, um, I am somewhat too. The only, the only thing that I am not, not particularly optimistic on is like, it requires reading the documents and mm-hmm. I, I don't know that people love to read the docs, but <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe chat GPT and Bard can read the docs for people and tell people what's really going on. Yes. That may be like <laughs> a really good thing to come out of AI. Who knows? I, one question I, I I got it from a from a buddy that I wanted to ask you. What what is your view, or how should I think about, in your opinion, some of these uh, rent a bank type structures? You know, and kind of where does the where does finance is is this a new phenomenon? Is this kind of a an old phenomenon happening again? Like what's going on with yeah. that? So like rent a bank mean like banking as a service, like yeah. uh, people like these fintechs using banks. Right. A, like Chime has a bank banking. that it uses in another state. And I'm not trying to pick on them. It's just a structure yeah. that I see a lot of places. Well, I mean, I think a lot of banks have gotten into that thinking that, oh, you know, with zero percent interest rates, they're like, oh, look at all these deposits we're going to pick up. And, and um, you know, I talked to a bank that's Last just last week, I talked to a bank that's heavily into the banking as a service, and they have, I think they have, twelve programs. Three are onboarded, and they're constantly talking to new fintechs. To, and they're like, the cost of these deposits is super high. Like it's like because the fintechs have these contracts, and they're renegotiating the banks against each other. That it's going to turn out that this banking as a service, all these banks that are getting into it, are going to not be happy with the cost of the deposits. So I think. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of growth or there's a lot of interest amongst banks to rent out their balance sheets but the the rates they're going to have to pay for these deposits is not going to be interesting so hmm. so I, I don't know if like that makes banks less interested in them but i think they'll that i think the winners there will either be the consumers or the fintechs will um will capture that surplus and the banks will not be winners 
Yeah, because it's got to result in spread compression, right? Or I guess if you don't want your spread to compress, you take more credit risk or duration risk. Something right. you got to get paid for something, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think that, you know, the, it's because the fintechs will own the customer relationship. So they get the value, right? The banks. Yeah. It's a wholesale relationship for the banks. So they're they're not customer facing. They're not going to get the value. I mean, I think that's one of, if you go... You know how we have Apple Pay now and all all the banks let you put your credit card on Apple Pay and then you can and then you can use your phone to I think that was bad on the bank's part, like to just allow to sign up and say, Hey, we wanna be on Apple Pay, put your credit card on Apple Pay, because I think it takes it takes a lot of the you know, allows Apple to have the the customer facing relationship with the with the with the customer. And so I think Apple is going to extract a lot of value away from the credit card banks on that relationship. So I think you know, the banks kind of just, they haven't given away the store, but like, they, I think that was, they gave up too much in that, that scenario. And I think the same thing with these FinTech banking and service things, the FinTechs are going to capture the value. Well, there is no greater Fox to let into the hen house than Apple. Uh, and I, and I hear what you're saying, right? People say, oh, Apple pay is so easy, right? They don't say like paying with bank of America via Apple is very easy. Like no one is thinking of it in that way. They're just thinking, mm -hmm. oh, Apple pay is the best. Yeah. So then if Apple gets a certain transaction volume, then they go to bank of America and say, well, everybody's using my, you know, my format. Right. So I don't care that it's your customer. It's really my customer. Right. And so Apple's going to go to the banks and say, we want a bigger cut of the interchange fee. Yeah. And the banks live on the interchange fee. So, I mean, there is a limit to that because the customers get, the consumers get a lot of the interchange fee in the form of rewards or airline miles or whatever. So, but, you know, the, that, the, it makes interchange fees a lot less profitable for the banks to have Apple involved. Yeah, and those are pretty high margin fees, right? I mean, that's not like the kind of fees that you want going away, I wouldn't think. Correct. Huh. Yes. Interesting. Well, I don't know. What uh what do you think just generally alt alt managers had such a, a good run? What do you think that that higher rates and the ability for people to find yield does to some of the I guess, private equity and alt managers, uh, if anything, the answer may be nothing, but just curious for your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that's interesting, interesting question. I think alts have this, um, have this mind share amongst institutional investor where they're like, we can provide returns for you that are higher and with no mark to market. So there's no volatility, higher returns with less volatility. And we know that there is, there, it's actually a more volatile asset is just not marked to market. Right. And, um, but they, I think there's, uh, I think there's some consternation amongst institutional investors right now of that they're over exposed to, to alts. Like they're not liquid. They gave venture VCs too much money. The returns on the, you know, the 2020, 2021 vintage VCs are going to be severely negative. And I think the institutional investors are going to eat that. Are they going to continue to be like, I, I looked at some of the fundraising numbers in the last year or two for the big private equity firms, and they don't seem to be lights out. Like it seems like they raise funds. They don't, 
they're not upsizing funds. Maybe a few funds didn't quite meet their fundraising targets. I do think that the the private equity firms generate good good returns overall, and I think that the you know we're just in a, in a part of the cycle where the returns, the forward returns, don't look ideal because rates have moved up so much. But I think um, you know I think some institutions will retain some liquidity. They'll probably increase their allocations to fixed income and liquid fixed income to to meet their return targets and improve their liquidity. But so I mean, I think there might be a little bit of air pocket for, for all fundraising here, but yeah, that would make sense. Almost like a short-term cyclical dip in a potentially secular long. It, it It's kind of, it, look, if I was an allocator, I would like to get wind and dined by, by private equity firms. So I don't, and it's nice to not have to mark your book to, to market as we've, learned in the last year or two. Yeah. So I would say, I mean, uh, the number of IPOs and the number of small companies are, are way down from the mid nineties, right? We're down to, you know, 3000 or so publicly traded companies down from 5,000. You know, a lot of that stems from the, the Spitzer investigations, like can't pay research analysts for investment banking deals. So, you know, there's there's not that Hamper Conquest or the Montgomery Securities out there, Alex Browns or whatever, bringing small growth companies to market. They're just going into private equity firms or getting private equity funds because it's more efficient to raise capital through private equity than it is the public markets. And so that's going to continue. I mean, you know, you can't pay for pay for research through stock trading commissions. Like it just you know that business model is gone. So like firms aren't bringing small firm, you know, investment banks aren't bringing small growth companies to market like they used to. And so that's a, that's a bull case for private equity, but they're just a more efficient capital vehicle. Yeah. Eventually you would think that you got to flip it to the public market once it gets to the biggest firm, I guess, right? You got to have some liquidity event sometime, but it seems mm-hmm. as though they've been able to flip it and flip the assets to each other or, or extend and and refi out. I don't know, yeah. but um, it's been interesting to watch. And one of those things that I've heard forever is going to come to a halt, but uh, I just continues to go on, right? Which I, I'm learning more and more things just tend to go on for a lot longer than uh, people yeah, say they can. For sure. for sure. Yeah. So I look, I, I just, I want to say thank you to you uh, so much for coming on the program. It's an honor to do a program that deserves a guest like you. And I, I have followed you for such a long time and I just appreciate uh, you coming on. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Bill. Really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, indeed. Uh, we'll be in touch. And should you ever want to come on again, just let me know. Sounds great. All right. But it's absolute, 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 absolute.